This is the biggest film I have ever done. And I don't think they make them that big anymore. They don't give you 3,000, 4,000 crowd to dress every single day for six months. Hello, I'm Poonam and welcome to Crew Chats Podcast, where I speak to the people that work behind the scenes in film, TV and theatre. For today's episode, I chatted with costume supervisor Claire Sprague about travelling the world, how her role has changed and the practicalities of those big crowd scenes. Hi, Claire. Hello. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. So I am going to start off my first question, and that is you're a costume supervisor in the film industry. And what does that involve for you? Diving straight in. Well, I'm normally employed by the costume designer. Not always. Sometimes a producer will put me forward. And then the costume designer will then talk to me about the script, talk to me about, you know, you know, do I want to come on board? I'll generally say, yes, I do, because it's probably going to be exciting. And then we talk about getting a team together. Generally, they will always bring their own design assistant on board and their little small design team, depending on the scale of the film. And I will then bring on the rest of the team, which can be, depending on the scale of the film, small or vast. I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I was going to actually ask you about, um, I want to get into budgeting and all that kind of stuff, Mm because I'm really interesting. But what do you look for when putting a team together, what are the key attributes that you look for to create that team? Well, let's go for a big team because that's always more exciting to do. So when I'm doing something on this, if I'm doing something like creative and huge like Aladdin, Mm. then that's going to have several sub-departments within the costume department. So I'm going to have the principal making team that will probably have at least three head cutters. They will probably have at least four to five sewers that work within their team. So that's just the the principal head cutters. Then I could have the team that are making crowd costumes. Aladdin, we made a lot of crowd costumes. Or I'm hiring costumes that need embellishing. So I'll have an embellishment team or I'll have a crowd cutter. Um, Quite often they mix together. Um, That can be, that will be smaller than my principals. So that's dealing with the principal costumes, the crowd costumes. Then I might have a leather worker. We might be making a lot of leather, interesting belts, breastplates, gauntlets, anything could be made. So I'll have a leather worker, they'll have a team. Then I might have a jewellery maker who's doing headdresses and earrings, jewellery, whatever. They will then have a team. And so that's then the making team fairly well covered. And then the... I have a coordinator who's the person who <laughs> runs my budget for me. Um, we will have a buying team. They're very important. They quite often, a costume designer will have her favorite buyer. But on something, on a large film, you mainly have, you could have four buyers and then you have junior buyers and then you'll have trainees because a lot of this is bought, looked at, returned or with fabric buying. You choose people that are for the film that you're working on you will choose that person for their skills. Some people are exceptionally good fabric sources and selectors, Mm. but maybe not so good at doing a modern film. So, and I just have worked over the years with these people. So I know who fits into which slot. Then where else are we going now? Then I've got my team that look after my actors, my principal dressers. Then I have my, uh, I will have a, I've talked about my coordinator. I will have a crowd supervisor. And then he will then have a, Um, I will have a couple of exceptionally good fitters for the crowd. Mm. And then we're moving down to juniors and down to trainees in that department. And then dresses will be pulled in on the big crowd days as dailies. Of course, I mean, you cannot do something on this scale that creative 
without having a breakdown team that bring these costumes to life. And again, that could be one person, it could be a team of 10. We've had huge teams in the past that can not just break down the costumes, but they can print the print certain fabrics that you need. They can distress certain fabrics in a certain way. Exceptionally clever artists within that department. And what do you think when you're putting this team together, where do you how do you foster a good working environment as the head of this? That's a very good it's a very good question. It's a very important um question because if this team is not working cohesively together, you won't get a product that is is good at all. I'm really lucky that the heads of the departments in these sub-departments I've worked with for many years and they bring their team on and they're obviously going to bring a team that works really well with them. I bring the heads on who work really well with me. And it's just a matter of respecting everybody and respecting their positions and respecting their talent. They bring so much to the table that, you know, you could have an idea the designer could have an idea and they will enhance it or run with it and go, well, we could do this, this or this. And the, uh, you have to work as well as a team. If, it, if it's not running well, then it all starts to sort of unravel. Would it be fair to say that, I guess, then it, you would le- you'd kind of, you're not going to micromanage, I don't know the terminology to use, but you leave it to the individual heads of departments to kind of deal with this sort of their team, as it were. Ab- absolutely. The ins and absolutely. outs of that. Absolutely. And they will know because they will have employed that team for several years that they work well. And yeah. quite often they will have worked with a jewellery makers would have worked with the breakdown team or the, the cutters will have worked with the breakdown team or, you know, the assistant designers would have worked with all of them. So we all have a language, unspoken language that we've worked together before and it works well. And if there's a problem, they come to me and we deal with it really fast. But there's never really a I'm very lucky I've never really had a personnel problem um it's more to do with you know a crisis of costume problem (laughs) to deal with fast but um yeah if someone's not working within a department and I've been very lucky it's been very rare but it does happen um you have to sort of one find why it's not working talk to them ask them because if it's not working for you it's not going to be working for them as well so you just have to Mm. sort of delve deep and talk to them and sometimes it can be resolved and sometimes it can't and it's just better for them to go than to stay and be unhappy and not not do a good job yeah I mean I I suspect your role can sometimes involve sensitive and sometimes awkward conversations whether that be with you know uh, people that the team you've created or people you know in production or producers whoever you know whoever it may be and that kind of um skill set I guess because I mean, we'll get into how you got into what you do a bit later, but you wouldn't have necessarily gone on to a management course of how to deal yes. with people. And how do you, I think I've asked this to other pe- other heads of departments as well. So, but how do you kind of deal with that? And how do you sort of, the HR, the HR aspect of it, I guess, is what, is what I'm trying to say. Like you mentioned personnel, I guess it's, that's the right terminology to use as well. How do you kind of, because we're not trained. I mean, ultimately you're not, you haven't gone to, like I said, you haven't done a course in this. And so some of it obviously comes from experience, but it also just comes from, I guess, communication. What would you it, say? It does. I think if you've chosen the role to supervise, then you come into that route and you've become this role because you're obviously good at managing people because that's what it's all about one it's managing money but that's another side of it two it's managing people and getting the best out of people making people work well together 
And I don't think you'd become a supervisor if you didn't have those skills. Mm-hmm. And I think they either just, you you have them. I'm not sure it's something you can learn. Um, it's like, you know, I didn't go to a supervisor school to become a supervisor. I just learned the skills on the many films that I've done. <laughs> well, that lends nicely on to another question, which is how did you get into what you do? That's very interesting. I, I always thought... Um, I was going to be a fashion buyer. I went to London College of Fashion and that's what I was going to do. I did a a two-year course in design and technology. And then I came out of that. I have another passion in my life, which is travel. And I just thought, you know, I'm not quite ready to enter the work world yet. I'm going to go and travel. And my travels took me, basically, I ended up, I traveled all through Pakistan, all through India, and I ended up in Hong Kong, which was by then a British colony. And I just loved it. I just felt at home. So I stayed answered an ad in a paper that they needed a stylist on a on a magazine, a similar magazine to Elle or Vogue, but a Chinese version. And I just ended up living in Hong Kong and running around with a bunch of photographers and fashion. And that's where I thought my life was going into the sort oh. of fashion world. And then someone suggested in the UK, Sandy Powell came out to make a film in Hong Kong and said, oh, there's a girl out there. Her name's Claire. Call her. If nothing else, she'll take you out for a drink and show you where the clothes shops are. Anyway, we became firm friends and I basically ended up working on her film that she was doing out there and also doing my styling job. And that's kind of where the direction of my life went after that. Whoa. I gave, I went after the, I stayed in Hong Kong for a year. Sandy left, did her film and left. And I then actually moved to Australia and I did a a TV series there. And then eventually I thought I'd better go home. Ended up back at home, called Sandy and I said, listen, I'm back in the UK have you got anything? Do you need an assistant? And that's sort of how it happened. Wow, you went and all I over the world. Saying, yeah, I know. I mean, you're, it's strange how your life's path turns out. It could have been very different, but this is, this is mine and this is, <laughs> this is where it started. Amazing. What was that first film that you did when you came to the UK? That I'm thinking it was Edward II. Oh, okay. Derek Norman film. Ah, there's a really it was it was very small film, very low budget, and there's a there is a really lovely story to that, and it's very dear to my heart. It's um there's a there's a scene where Sandy wanted the king, paid by um Steve Waddington, to wear a gold encrusted gown, a huge gold encrusted gown. We had no money to buy gold encrusted fabric, so Sandy being Sandy was like, well, we'll just make it. So we had a lot of glitter, we had a lot of gold sequins, and we had glue guns, and we made the fabric. Um, and then I sewed the gown, um, the huge line. I made two, actually, one for the little king and one for the adult king, Steve. And they look fabulous. Like, you know, they glitter and they sparkle. And then several, several years later, when Derek died, Sandy called me and said, I just thought I'd like you to know that when Derek was buried, he's buried in your gold encrusted gown from Edward II. And it just, you know, really was just made me feel really special. He was oh. an extraordinary man. And I was really lucky to have worked with him as, you know, my first what first film back in the UK. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. really, that's really lovely. That must have yeah. meant so much to him. I think but- the film probably did. All his yeah. films, an extraordinary man with what he, he, he did. And he left us way too early. Um, but, yeah, it was... Quite something. Yeah, so if you see the gown in the film, I'm gonna look it up. Yeah, it's a fabulous, it's a good film to watch anyway. Oh, 
Oh, wow, that's really lovely. Sorry, I'll just laugh. You know. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel? Actually, what was your feeling when she told you that? You know, I was just really kind of honoured. It was a it was a long time ago um, that I made the gown. And then obviously he, he lived several years after that. But I think it just shows the type of man he was, that he was still so involved with all the films that he had worked on. And the fact that they could even, I don't know, where the gold gown had been living. But um, Sandy had obviously found it. Or maybe he had had it at the end of the film. I really don't know. There was oh. nothing... There was nothing organised like embargoing costumes in those days. There was nothing like that. I have no idea what happened to the costumes at the end of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? And the fact that literally was Sandy and I sticking and gluing sequins forever. And then, you know, hope they lasted for the scene. Yeah, well, they've clearly lasted a lot longer, haven't they? I did, yeah. That's so special. And yeah, and actually I know this is slightly off topic, but you mentioned embargo. I always get asked what happens to costumes after mm-hmm. the production. What does happen to them? Well, you know, it depends what film you're doing, but let's just say, you know, a Disney films, I've done a lot of those. All the key costumes that belong to all the actors, they are beautifully logged by my team as to which scenes they were in, which characters, and then I box them like that. I box them per character. And they are shipped to the Disney stores in in LA. And then if I've made crowd costumes or we have a lot, I've bought a lot of stock, then we'll discuss with the asset people whether they want them in LA or I will try and sell them to a costume house in either Spain, England, Italy. And then at least I know where they are when I need them again, which I might need them. <laughs> That's true. Um, and in that, I guess, in relation to your a story about Derek Jarman, do you, at the end of a production, often get actors or designers or people in the production, um, directors, for example, saying to you or, or you hearing of that this meant something really special to us, can we keep it or can we just generic, generally, can we just keep this costume? Well, generally on the larger productions, they're owned by the studio. So the request has to go to the studio and it's up to the studio whether they want to give their leading actor fabulous red dress that they wore or something. I don't know. It's up to them. That's way beyond what I do. And I'm then just told, yes, they can have it or no, they can't. So the request gets put in. I see. Okay. <laughs> so no, 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 I'm saying, I guess no. nowadays it's a very different story to what it was <laughs> Very different story to what it was, yes. <laughs> um, oh, all these bigger ones, they're sort of huge corporate companies. So, Yeah, I guess it's all very asset-y, like you would use that word yeah. asset. It's considered yeah. an asset. Yeah. Mm. Well, you have an um, asset or one. Yeah, I feel like that story is going to stick with me. <laughs> like... I know, it is lovely. Um, you mentioned travelling was your passion, and mm. how do you think that has shaped your career? I think... I'm extremely lucky because I have filmed all over the world and I think that's why I've enjoyed my job so much. I think if I had been very much UK studio based, I don't think I'd have lasted this long in this industry. Mm. The fact that one, your job is finite, so you are normally on a job for six to eight months, these bigger ones a bit longer. Then I've always, if the film's travelling abroad, then that's great. It's a massive bonus for me. Or if not, then I will have a two-month gap or something between my next film and I'll go off and travel. But I've always said the minute I have will have stopped enjoying what I do, then I will always change. I would stop working in the film industry if I don't enjoy it. 
I still do. Well, that long may it I'm continue. Still here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here and I'm still <laughs> loving all the traveling I get to do. Also for the prep, I sort of travel quite a lot to Spain and Rome, and I now have relationships with all the people in those costume houses over the years. I mean, with you know, my career spanned 30 years. So I have, you know, when I go, they're friends. They go and, you know, I select my crowd costumes, but I'm also visiting friends that I've visited, you know, every year for the last 20 years. So I'm very, very lucky, I think. Oh. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. Amazing career, amazing experiences to have had as well. I think that's... I think I'm lucky with the, the designers who have employed me. Um, they have done, I mean, Jenny's done, we've worked in Malaysia together, Jenny and I in France together. We've been in Bulgaria together. Um, Sandy, I've done the whole Russian odyssey with her when we were in Uzbekistan and St. Petersburg and all over, yeah, all over the place. And Janti, I've done a lot in Morocco with Janti. She did a Sandy film in Morocco as well. Uh, a few with Janti in Morocco, Spain. Spain, France, Italy. Oh, gosh, all over the world. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. And Tef, what do you think you would? I know you want. You mentioned that you wanted to be a fashion buyer at the beginning, but all, all through when you were traveling and before you came back here, what do you think you would have done? If that makes sense. Um, I'm pretty sure I would have been a stylist. I don't know how good a stylist I would have been, but I would have been a stylist. And then I think you know your path. It could have been changed by not styling fashion by then doing um pop promos and I did do a few of those when I came back as well with a designer called Pam Tate um it's just far far more exciting so the minute I got into costume I just thought you know what this is way more exciting than fashion and and how did you end up in the role of a supervisor well I worked with Sandy um a lot we've done about 11 films together okay. I know over the years and I mean Honestly, the beginning of how we first started working to how I work now couldn't be more poles apart. You kind of did everything. And then I think Sandy just said one day, you know, you need to make a decision whether you're going to supervise or become an assistant or a designer. And I'm never going to be another Sandy Pell. I knew that. And I thought, you know, my skills are better supervising. Ah, you, you kind of mentioned it there. How has the industry changed the role of a supervisor? Um Throughout over over the years and through from when you first started to now, well, when I first started, we're talking over thirty years ago, so that's quite a long time ago. And literally, then you were that was pre-computers. I mean, it's making me sound ancient. Pre-mobile, <laughs> so you were just you were given your script, you were given your budget, and you were you had to make it for that. There was no. I mean, you kind of everybody in our very small department did everything. I mean, Orlando, we had the tiniest crew in the world. But, you know, that's a, that was a four million film. That's what my budgets are now. That was the whole film. Oh, wow. So that's how it's, it's changed. But also I've done, my job changes, I've done bigger and bigger and bigger films. But predominantly, I've become far more of an accountant than, <laughs> than anything else. It's all about, it's all about running uh, the, the budget and making that work and less and less about touching a costume do you miss that I do miss that but I'm very lucky with the designers I work with as I'm I still have for example if I'm doing a period film then I will um with the designer or with the design assistant or with the crowd supervisor we'll go and select the costumes like for Cruella 
we did a, a huge, I did a huge amount of selecting the crowd costumes, even managed to fit a huge number of the crowd, which was, you know, fabulous. Cruella was amazing to do. Um, I bought vast amounts of jewellery on that because you can still get 70s jewellery. So I still managed to get my creative input into it. The same with Aladdin. I, you know, I managed to get to Morocco to buy all the jewellery, get all the shoes manufactured because I've done several films in Morocco. So um, it was kind of the obvious choice to go there. So I still have that element of I'm very lucky with the designers. They they allow me to dabble in the, the costume <laughs> side of um. I, probably, I don't know if you want to answer this question, but how was it going to the Oscars? Because so, you went with Jenny Bevan took you, didn't she? Explore, you can taken, explain yourself. Jenny's taken me twice to the Oscars. We were nominated for Gosford Park a long ah. time Beautiful film. Absolutely. Jenny, just stunning film. Absolutely Jenny's best. And then she took me on this one and it just had an absolutely fabulous time. It was very strange because it was COVID. So we had, you know get off the plane, get on the plane tested, get off the plane tested, get to the hotel tested. Super complicated to get into the Oscars because we were all tested and, you know, had to have apps on your phone and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, it was great. And I say it was fun. Uh, and to win, it was amazing. And that speech she gave was just, you know, fabulous. Well, I was going to say, because you mentioned you and the speech was really, really kind because actually I, I don't ever hear, just generally costume, I find are a bit of an unacknowledged department. Um, just generally. So that was like, oh, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> I know. And to get a name check. But, you know, that is Jenny through and through. She's incredibly generous with the praise. And I've done something like 15 films with Jenny now. So, Aww. you know, we have, a lot of, we have a lot of history and a lot of um, easy work history. That's what I was touching on before is because we've worked so much together that it's kind of easy. We've got a language. So, you know, no matter how intense it all gets, um, she knows that this is all being covered, that's all being covered, and like, she can just get on with her section. Um, you mentioned budgeting, and you kind of said how you how you get the job, through, whether it's through a costume designer or producer, a production, or etc. But when it comes to budgeting, I know you mentioned that either you're given a budget, well, I don't want to speak for you, actually. How does budgeting work, and how do you oh, assign finances? Those, those, those days are long gone where you were given a budget, given a script, given a schedule, and just shot it and did it. Um, those don't happen anymore. Um, very lucky if you get a script you can say I haven't had a script for the last three years um, <laughs> and you just have to on the job current job you just have to grab snippets like oh we're going to okay we're going to be doing that we're going to run we're going to have a car chase we're going to do this that okay but normally say a script like Cruella we are I break it down the costume designer and I break down her principles so we know exactly how many outfits every single actor is going to have and then we look at it in the way of stunts. Do they need any repeats? Are they going in fire? Are they getting wet? You know, anything disastrous happening to them. And then you just multiply it up. Um, and you do that for every single actor that's scripted. And then you always put a bit of full safe in because they'll throw in new actors. Mm. Um, and then you do exactly the same for the crowd. Yes, I've got so many parties. I'm talking about Cruella. Mm. So many parties um, to do. We've got so many outside scenes we've got horse and carriages we've got cars we've got drivers we've got stunts and so you break it down and you you allocate a portion of money for every single section and that's basically how you do it and then that's your costume budget then you've got your your staffing budget that, that I think comes with years of experience to do a staffing budget on a large film because discussing all those smaller departments within the costume department 
all have to be budgeted for and their length of time. You have to go, okay, they're going to be with us for four months, no five months, no one month. And you have to put that into your overall budget that you generally can't stray from once they've approved it. And well, they, they change the goalposts. Well, actually, it was going to be my question is that if, if um, I don't know, some type of something happens, I, I can't tell, I can't think off the top of my head. But if you were to ha- go, uh, had to go over or needed more money for costume, what happens in that situation? Oh, they will know a long time before I, I'm going over. If they suddenly put in a new scene, then I'll budget it and go, are you aware this is going to cost you? Have you got this type of money? Are we going to take this money from somewhere else? Are you cutting another scene? It's generally, it shouldn't change from the budget I put in unless they are rewriting the script or adding things. Right. It happens all the time. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say, you must get that chopping and changing all the time. Frequently. Really hard when you don't even have a script. So, you know, <laughs> to try and stay in budget when there is no script is quite tricky. Would you say that's the biggest challenge of your job? I would say the two biggest challenges are running a team that are happy to work together, happy to come into work every single day and respect each other. And then I would say is running your budget and making sure that everything the designer wishes, which is also really tricky because they may decide that they want something that's made out of spun gold from, you know, cobwebs from little ninjas in God knows where. And you have to find that fabric and cost it but then you might have to do something cheaper further down the line so you just have to try and do the best for your designer with the money that you are given because you want to make their vision happen on screen it's not always easy with the money and the designer with their vision and how you mentioned keeping the team happy but how and what wanting them to come into work every day happy um I guess there's two parts. How do you ensure, ensure, try to make that happen? And then secondly, what do you do to keep your spark alive for what you do? Um, firstly, the team that you've employed, going back to the fact that you've worked oh. with them before and they all get on and we all respect each other. Um, that goes. That has to go without saying for me. And if there's a problem, I like people to come to me and we will sort out the problem. Mm. What was the second bit of the question? How how do you ensure that you keep uh, your spark alive to for what you do? You know what I love about my job is the fact that every single film is different. It's I'm not going into a nine to five job. And generally, I don't do three year films. My <laughs> films only last a year, and therefore, you know, I've done a film. I've done Cruella, and then I'll go on, and I'll I will do something completely different. You never know what you're going to do next, what's going to be offered to you. That's what I like, the challenge of and the creativity of you're jumping from Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Cruella, and then you're bouncing back to a period, strict period drama. Um, what advice would you give to a younger you? Wanting to be a supervisor. Yeah, or back in Hong Kong when you've, well, actually, I mean, in, back in Australia, just before you came back here. You know what? I would, if I hadn't have gone into this. I had no idea that this is the path I was choosing. I just happened to really like Sandy. I really liked the job that I did in Hong Kong. If the first job I'd with the second had been horrible, I probably would have gone down a different path. I have a big passion in life and that is traveling. Mm. And I spent the, my early years when you didn't go from film to film, did a film, uh, finished the film, and then I'd have a bit of money. So I would jump on a plane. I always had a long list of countries that I wanted to visit. 
and I would um, go off. I mean, occasionally Sandy would join me, but she, you know, she had other things she was doing. She was very creative. There's always, always lots of things going on in Sandy's life. Um, and I would, you know, a couple of months away or I'd give her a post-restaurant because no mobile phones. I never knew where I was going to end up or be. Um, and then we'd sort of connect somehow and she'd say, yeah, we've got a film coming up. Um, can you be back in, you know, in two weeks' time or something? So, I mean, there was once when I was in, where was I? I, was, I think I might have been in Guatemala. And I said, yeah, yes, I'm going to be. That's fine. It's going to catch the plane anyway. I completely overstayed my visa. They wouldn't let me get on the plane. <gasps> I had to had to go to some special office in Quito or wherever I was and get another stamp. Or it basically means I couldn't get back to the UK for another two weeks. So I had to send some great big long fax to Sandy and, and her supervisor, John Scott, saying, look, I'm really sorry. I'm stuck in Ecuador. I can't get out for my own, you know, stupidity. It's, um, they, they waited for me. <laughs> Very lucky. <laughs> And that's sort of how I worked for the first five, six years. And then the work just started rolling in. So you wouldn't have that amount of travel time off. So I think if it if it hadn't worked out, I would have done something else. Which countries had the biggest impact on your on you? Um, I would say uh India, because I keep going back to India. I've I've done I mean I've I've spent a when I was 18 I got on a truck and drove with some friends and we drove from uh, London to Nairobi and we were meant to be going down to Cape Town but the London to Nairobi took six months wow and by then we're all sick of each other so we all jumped off in Nairobi and said that's enough Um, (laughs) and I'm so I've done quite a bit of Africa but my heart I would say is definitely in India I love it which which is just for me which is your favorite part favorite part you know what I had um it's really hard to say because I've it's all fabulous um I particularly loved Gujarat because very few people go to Gujarat hey that's where I'm from really yeah I loved it I was um I met someone there that we had been using uh remotely obviously uh to do embroidery when we're doing Beauty and the Beast and I just touched base with them and saying, listen, I, I would, I'm, I'm traveling through India. Um, I would like to come and see you. And then I ended up going on this fantastic tour of all the surrounding villages that do this most, all do different types of either embroidery or hand looming or specific dyeing. They're all wherever they are. They're specialists and that village does just that. And it's kind of like a dyeing art. And it's it's I had one of the most fantastic times ever. And I would I'm planning on hopefully going back this Christmas to that region just to do the same thing yet again because I made some friends there and it's um I loved it. You yeah. mentioned obviously artisans that you come across on your travels. How does mm. that then ha- influence when you're on a job does that I guess assume it helps um no it really helps especially for buying I mean it was um I don't think I can take credit for the um Beauty and the Beast I think that was uh could have been Jacqueline and Jacqueline's assistant Sinead that found the um embroiderers that did the 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 bodice of the I think it was Beauty she in her, her I think it was her little peasant dress that she was wearing um but I can definitely on Aladdin, we actually sent a buyer to India and she was out there 
and it helped that I had been there. It actually, you know, strangely enough, I was there on holiday when I was offered Aladdin, and oh. I thought, well, <laughs> I could said, be in a better place. Right? Immediately, I went, no, I can't. I'm in India, and I said, I literally. Uh, I said, can you do a budget? I went, no, I can't do a budget. I haven't got a computer. I've got my mobile phone. Um, so <laughs> I said, you can. <laughs> so anyway, but long and short of it was the designer came out to India uh, with the buyer and I hooked up with them and they waited for me to come back properly. I started my crew without me and we sort of did things remotely. And they did wait for me to come back, and then I could do a proper budget for them. But no, they we did, bought a lot in India, and also I think when I was, I'd also bought some things, some samples and things in Thailand, and Thailand and northern Vietnam, and I had contacts there, so we could get some more of that type of things. Mm. Always trying to get contacts wherever I go if there's good fabrics. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Why not? It's probably like a problem more than like, like it's an, an additional nice thing to just kind of mm. different part of your travels, isn't it? Everyone's like, is traveling, but you have like a different interest in the artistic nature of each country. Yeah, I never I travel back light. I always seem to have gained I can imagine. several suitcases. No backpacking for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I start off with that, you know, and then it always seems to grow. And then there's always like, you know, some poor old porter lugging as I finally get on the plane. <laughs> we've got a lot coming home with me <laughs> what would you what advice would you give to someone aspiring to be a costume supervisor or in the I guess in the stage where they're an assistant supervisor well, yeah I think um you need to put your years in you can't just be a costume supervisor in two years you need to have worked in within most of the departments um within a, a costume team so I would I mean when I first started I was buying or I was then I was on set. I looked after actors for quite a while. Um, then I moved to crowd, and then it just it was a natural progression to becoming a super. I did you know a lot of a lot of years banking a lot of information and resources and knowledge because you need to know how within a department all the sub departments work. Mm. I think that's the best answer. And what would you like to see change in our industry? That's a very loaded question. <laughs> um, believe it or not, after all these years, I still struggle with female equality. Um, interestingly, I quite often take my male assistant into meetings. Bear in mind, I've been doing this 30 years. Mm. And within the, the production meetings, predominantly male, they will always direct the question to my male assistant. Really? Yes. So I would just like a little bit more equality. How yeah? How do you think that? Could, how do you think that could change? What do you think that? Could, you know, I think it's change? the attitudes of this. It's not always the case, mm. um, and I think things are changing definitely. But when you work on these large films, you know you've still got quite a lot of old school people. I don't know. I don't know how it can change. I've, that's my frustration. Mm. It's not the only thing that um, I'd like to see changed. I think it's also. Um, not to there's a lot of people entering this industry because there's suddenly there was a huge influx of work post-COVID and people racing up the, the costume ladder too quickly and not gathering the experience they need and them becoming unstuck, you know, being offered roles that they're not experienced enough to do. And you either rise to that challenge or you don't. So I do see quite a bit of that. I'm not sure if that would or that would change if the, the work slows down that would change hmm. 
then you have the pick of the crew and you'll clearly take the more experienced ones. Well, yeah, I guess there is something to be said for experience and taking that taking Definitely. that with you. You cannot have enough experience. Um, the for your first frustration, the um, first change rather frustration. Um, that you're not alone in that. Actually, a number of people I've spoken to have said that. So I and everyone has sort of caveated with they do see change, but it's kind of not happening quickly enough. So it's quite interesting. It's an interesting time at the moment. Very male dominated industry that you know you choose to enter as a female. So you have to have, you have to be strong. Yeah. To be a head of a department. Yeah, I guess so. But that also doesn't um, take away from the fact that they, that that attitude also probably, it shouldn't necessarily be like, say you having to adjust you and obviously you do naturally over time, but I guess also it requires that over time, that meeting environment needs to have a slight change of attitude as well, I suppose. Yeah. You can't always be on the um, female in the room, I guess. Um, And if you were going to, suggest one thing that we should in the film industry that we should all sort of or should be our mantra I guess what would you think it would be or should be I think we should respect each other I like it once you've got that you can you can work through I mean we are thrown really hard problems and you know we work really intense long hours but if you ultimately you respect everybody with in your working team it'll you'll get through it and that you know it is hard and it is tense and everybody gets tired and you do get angry and you get hangry and (laughs) but if if you manage to work cohesively and again I'm gonna say again respect each other you'll you'll be fine yeah I agree um I'm on to my final question and what are your three to watch recommendations Okay, I'm choosing because I'm asked this question a lot. What are my <laughs> my favourite film I've ever worked on? And I can't do that because there's been so many. So I'm going to choose three of my films that I have worked on. One I'm going to have to say is Orlando. 30 years ago, it's incredible. Everybody, everybody within the costume department should go and see it. Sally Potter, we did a we did a screening the other day and tried to get as many of the cast and crew of 30 years ago to come and see it. It's fabulous. Oh wow. stories from Orlando because again (laughs) it was in my early career where we weren't we weren't organized we did everything I mean and I remember one really early on we were going out to um pretty sure it was St. Petersburg Sandy and I were to fit an actress called Charlotte Valandry and we got on the plane and Sandy turned to me she went so you've got the sewing kit haven't you I went sewing kit am I meant to have a sewing kit I thought I was just here as your assistant she went well I guess we meant to have a sewing kit. But I said, we've got the costume. Anyway, we arrive there. We get the little hotel sewing kit. I said, look, I've got this. This We'll manage with this. Um, We clearly did the fitting. It was fine. And then Sandy just turned around and she went, you know, I'm really not happy how things are going here. You're going to have to stay. I went, what do you mean I'm going to have to stay? I've got clothes for two nights. She went, no, no, you have to stay. I want you to run all the actors. Um, They were going to be run by a local crew. And she went, no, I need you to stay. You know all the costumes. And um, I went okay I mean I'm in my 20s I went okay um fine I'm gonna send you everything you'll have everything don't worry and she did she sent me everything it was fine but um there was no such thing as a costume truck it was very very cold all the costumes had to come in a suitcase to my hotel room every night and then we'd have to put them all back in the minibus in the morning and go to whatever location we were at where there would be a room and and one ironing board 
I don't think we even had steamers in those days. It just was so just not organised and then had to sort of shake the costumes out, get all the actors in their costumes and then spend all day on set. And there was no one-to-one. I think I looked after, well, I looked after all the actors. Oh, basically. wow. And then they all had to, at the end of the day, pack all the suit. I had to do all the laundry in my hotel room and I, I got back to the hotel room and there was only one meal a night in the hotel room. And of course I missed it. And I said, Sandy, really not getting my evening meal. And there's, we were in Russia and there was like, no, no food. So I went, she said, listen, don't worry, I'm going to send you. So I got a whole package of like, you know, pot noodles, cups, oh. a little mini kettle for my room. I mean, could you imagine doing that now? You probably just, well, I'm just simply not going to the set unless I've had my breakfast. No, you would That just wasn't, it's not how we operated. And, um, yeah it was that's one of very many many stories on Orlando but um, that's one of my favorites where she just left me in St Petersburg I uh, hope you've held that against her ever since <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had quite a lot of adventures Sandy and I over the years <laughs> yeah that was that was quite good fun Oh, you know that. Thank God, I love traveling. Is all I'm going to say. Well, I was going to. Yeah, you can throw me anywhere, and I will survive. So, um, for me, it was just like you know a joy. And actually, after that whole film, we were filming out in Uzbekistan at the end, and I stayed afterwards. I that was the end of the filming, and I stayed afterwards with, I think, two if not three of the other crew, but two more of the other crew, and we made for Uzbekistan tourist board. We made a little film with them. Did you? Yes, we are stayed with the stills photographer and the translator, and oh, um, I think we didn't stay long. I think we stayed a week or something. But I mean, it was it was it was fun. Oh wow! Yeah, then I'm gonna say Kingdom of Heaven. Janty Yates was costume designer. Sandy was some um, costume designer of Orlando. So Janty Yates, Kingdom of Heaven. This is the biggest film I have ever done, and I don't think they make them that big anymore. They don't give you three thousand, four thousand crowd to dress every single day for six months. No, CGI them now. So that's what we were doing, and it was the biggest challenge I've ever done. And I'm um, very grateful for Janty for giving me that job. Um, it was, it was uh, alarming, uh, but fantastic at the same time. Quite. Yeah, fabulous. I just can't get over that number. Sorry. I know. It was amazing. <laughs> it's quite staggering. But we did it day in, day out. Whoa. For months. <laughs> oh, I'm going to call it an army. It was an army. Yeah. And it absolutely was 3,000. We had cavalry. We had stuntmen. We had civilians. Oh, we had, you know, it was mammoth. I had huge marquees. We were filming in Wazazat at the studios up there. And I also had my base there as well. So we're all, you know, it was like, it was, it was quite enormous. So, yes, and we did that in 40 degrees heat in the, through the summer months in Morocco. So, yes, pretty intense and very, very hot. How did you deal with uh, turning over costumes? Yeah, that's a good question because obviously they've got arming jackets on, arming trousers, quilted, they've got a breastplate on, they've got chain mail on, they've got a helmet on. And there is no way, I kind of had to think about this, there's no way I can wash that stuff because also it's been broken down, it's been dyed and broken down to look old. So I thought, well, I'm just going to make an undergarment, a cotton T-shaped undergarment, drawstring trousers. We painted, we dyed them various shades of brown and I made over 3,000 sets, not 6,000, but over 3,000. And I basically, at the end of the night, they were all collected up. I made special carts, like enormous wheelbarrows that two humans could pull from one tent over to the enormous laundry rooms we had. I had a night crew, 
doing laundry, washing all of these. And of course, they don't go in a washing machine because they take too long. So we had massive vats and they were basically hand washed or people got in them and stomped up and down on them. Then they were rinsed and put out and hung up to dry. And by the time they um, came in in the morning, let me think. No, I did have a, did we have a second? I can't remember. Whatever it was, they, they were dry and in their place by this night crew. I mean, we're lucky that we're in Morocco, so it was warm at night. Mm. So they could dry and then be in their place, ready for the next round. <laughs> and it went on day in, day out. Ah. I mean, I had a night crew repairing. The chainmail broke, the armoured leather straps broke. So there was quite a constant 24-hour costume crew. How long were you uh, filming out there for? <laughs> Well, we started in Spain and we moved from the north of Spain down to the south of Spain. And then I had a crew setting up in Morocco and we filmed. We had a, we left a second unit behind when we moved to the coast, to Essaouira. So it, all in all, I'm pretty sure we were there four months. It could have been longer. Four months. Not, not longer. I felt a lot longer. Oh, <laughs> Might be wow. Five. But yes, I mean, That's... the set is still standing there and they've been used many, many times. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Yeah. Mm. Do you have um, nightmares about that kind of thing again? You know what? I don't think anything will ever be done that big again and to organise something on that scale. I mean, I was so lucky at the most incredible Moroccan crew uh, run by a fabulous supervisor called Abdul Karim, who's done practically all the films that are of any worth in Morocco. He's done them. And he organised this incredible night crew and mending crew and a very talented workman and sewers and... Yeah, it was great. It was a huge learning curve for me, massive. I can imagine because once you've done 3,000, once you've done that, yeah. is there anything that can face you? <laughs> no, I think you're, I think you're probably right. Once you've, <laughs> I mean, it is like organising an army. It is colossal, absolutely. And I kind of broke it down into a stunt department, into a cavalry department, into women and children, into civilians, and then into um, just army. So we had tents for every single different fraction. And within that tent, I had crews running each of those tents. Some of those crews would then go to the set, follow the, the background extras to the set every day. And the others would be turning around, cl cleaning or mending stuff that was broken. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that sounds epic. I, I, I wonder if there's a behind the scenes, if they did talk a behind the scenes. I don't know. I'm sure they would have done. Yeah. Sure there must be behind the scenes uh -huh. of that. That would have been amazing. Mm. Amazing to, to obviously stressful, <laughs> but yes. uh, amazing to kind of, I guess. You know, you're getting to roll. I mean, we were, I mean, our hours that we did were phenomenal. I'm pretty sure we were at work by 3 a.m. We were starting dressing by 4, if not 5 a.m. They had to be on set for the sunrise. The The light was really good. So we'd be doing, um, they had to be up and marched off to the set because you know you can't transport three thousand people they have to walk to the set literally an army um, you're literally <laughs> an army actually we did have the moroccan army as our background extras um, and then we had something else because we put them in chainmail it was incredibly hot and incredibly uncomfortable so they would sneakily take that chainmail off during the day bury it um <laughs> Because they had arming jackets with uh, and stuff underneath. Because not everybody had the the chainmail, so of course the ones that had it didn't want to wear it. So they would then bury it and then come back at night without it. And I'd go, "Where's your chainmail?" So then we had to set up a system with a chit system so that we stamped them out with chainmail and we'd stamp them back in again oh, with chainmail. I know it was oh, quite. It was quite. 
<laughs> we also shot through Ramadan. So not only was it 40 degrees plus that they weren't eating or drinking from sunrise to sunset. Oh, wow. They are really, really tired, exhausted, angry, hungry, yeah. everything. It was quite that, that, that when we were shooting through Ramadan, it's... um. It's pretty hellish during a wrap or night because they are really hungry and they want to go and have their soup. Yeah, of course. I would. Uh, yeah, in that heat as well. Oh gosh. Yeah, I've done a few films through Ramadan. It's interesting. I wonder scheduling would take that into account, but anyway. <laughs> does never, never, never does. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and then Jenny Bevan Cruella absolutely loved every second of working on this we worked at such an incredibly fast pace it was challenging in every single aspect yeah it was amazing and you know she took me to the oscars what can i say and gave that fabulous speech oh and so awesome jenny Oh, she, yeah, she does. It. She strikes me as someone who is, to be fair. Um, thank you, Claire, for taking the time to speak to me and your three recommendations. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire. And if you get a moment, could you please like, follow or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram. Thank you.